I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles as well and open them up to Esther chapter 5. I promised last week that we would be diving back into the book of Esther. We've taken a little bit of a break, a little bit of a hiatus, but we are going to be marching now for the rest of the summer um, through the rest of the book of Esther. And uh, if, if you're new here, or maybe, maybe it's just been a couple weeks and you're kind of like, I, I can't even remember where we are in Esther, I just want to start by simply giving you a bit of a recap um, of the book of Esther, where we're up to at this point in time. You see, we are halfway through the book. And what we've seen is that the theme of Esther is that it often appears in one sense that God is not there. In fact, if you were to read through the book of Esther, one of the things you notice is that the, the name of God is not even mentioned, not even one time. It often feels in life, as it does in this book, that God is not there, and yet what we find out is that God's fingerprints are all over this book, even when it seems like God is not there, even when it feels like God is not there, He is absolutely there, and He is working all things according to His perfect plan. Chapter 1, we were introduced to the Persian kingdom and all of its pride and all of its pomp and circumstances. It's, it's really a depiction of the kingdom of this world. It's, it's filled with luxury and immorality. And, and though it appears at times to be exciting and entertaining, it's, it's a harsh and cruel and often dark place. We're introduced in chapter 2 to, to two Jews by the name of Esther and Mordecai, cousins Esther is an orphan, and her older cousin Mordecai takes her in and raises her up. Esther wins a beauty pageant, so to speak, and she becomes the, the queen of Persia. She's placed into this powerful position, but it's come about through some very dark, painful, even sinful ways but yet what we have seen is that God is still with her, and God is still for his people. Chapter 3, we're introduced to a man by the name of Haman who holds a high position with the king. He is the villain in this true story, and he hates God and hates his people. He particularly hates this man, Mordecai, and he devises a plan to destroy not only Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people. He wants to annihilate the Jews, and so he convinces the king to sign off on this edict that would hopefully bring this to pass. And so we're left at the end of chapter 3 right now wondering, does God really care? Is God going to come to the rescue of his people? Will God protect his people? Is God going to be faithful to the promises, to the covenant that he made with his people? In chapter 4, there is a major change in the story. And Mordecai tells Esther that perhaps, perhaps God has placed you in this very position at this very time for such a time as this. Maybe God has placed you here in order to save his people and accomplish his good purposes. But she must risk everything. Everything so that perhaps she might save God's people, and she agrees to do this. She calls God's people to fast on her behalf, and in three days she would go to the king and she would risk all of the privileges of one kingdom in order to preserve and advance another kingdom. 
We come here to chapter 5 as Esther begins to work out this plan and convince the king to abandon this edict. And we see really two different people that are held in contrast or in opposition to one another. This chapter holds out Esther and Haman. We see one who is faithful and one who is foolish. We see one who seeks to advance God's kingdom and one who seeks to annihilate God's kingdom. And we are reminded as we look at this chapter, listen, that there is no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. You're either part of one or part of the other. You're either advancing one or you're advancing the other. There is no neutrality. You can't play it safe, and you certainly can't have one foot in each of these kingdoms. And interestingly, those who often feel like they they can be neutral are unwittingly being used by the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, for the destruction or at least the hindrance of God's kingdom. And often that's pitched as the building of your own kingdom. But you see, like Esther and the people of God throughout the millennia, We must choose this day whom we will serve. We must decide if we are going to be of the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, or if we are going to immerse ourselves in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world. We see in this chapter how we can be one of two kinds of people. How we can be used for the development of God's kingdom or how we can be used for the destruction of God's kingdom. I want to first look at how to be used for the development of the kingdom. Verses 1 through 8 lays out Esther, and we see how God is going to use her to advance his kingdom. It says this in verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, Remember, at this point in in this unfolding true story, the Jews are facing certain death. 
The situation is utterly desperate. They need someone to come to their rescue, someone who will save them from this certain death. And Esther is actually the most unlikely person for the job. I want you to think about that for a minute. I mean, when a beauty pageant winner says their goal in life is to accomplish world peace, nobody steps back and goes, oh yeah, I can see that happening. And so here we have this frail young girl who's saying, in effect, I am going to attempt to accomplish world peace. I am going to prevent the utter annihilation of the people of God. I am going to risk everything in order to prevent the destruction of my people. This comes through this young woman who has up to this point been fearful, hiding her identity. The king at this point doesn't even know she's one of the Jews, that she is at risk at even being destroyed. And we saw in chapter 4 that Esther calls the people of God to fast and pray. And I think that's incredibly important. It's so important that the people of God understand that fasting and praying are supposed to be part of the regular rhythms of the Christian life. You know, it's interesting when you think about these two things. I, th- I think oftentimes in the Christian life, we see two kinds of people. We see people who can be slow to pray and quick to act, right? Maybe that's you. We're, we're hasty. We're, we're quick to move maybe out of emotion. We sense the urgency and we just start moving in the direction we think we ought to go instead of patiently coming to the Lord, praying and fasting and seeking his face. But on the flip side of that, we often have people who are quick to pray and never act. There comes, a, I, there comes a point in time in the Christian life where you need to say, I have been praying and seeking the face of the Lord, but now is the time for action. And this is what we see Esther doing in this chapter. It's time to act. It's time to be useful. So here's, here's how you can think of this. In the Christian life, you must fast and you must pray, but then you must obey. You must obey. And if you want to be used for the development of the kingdom of God, then here's, here's three things I want us to see. First, we must be strong and selfless. In the first few verses, we get a glimpse of this in Esther because what she's doing takes immense courage and immense strength. She's, she's putting feet to her faith. You see, Esther's decision to identify herself with God's people in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, That, I believe, is actually her conversion experience. I think that's the moment of truth for Esther. She's come face to face with the reality of God and God's calling upon her life, and she surrenders to him. You see, it's comparable to us coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Whenever somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, whenever somebody becomes a follower of God, they always, they're always called to count the costs. Jesus made this abundantly clear in the Gospels, and I, just, I say that because if somebody, if somebody told you that there was no cost to being a follower of Jesus, if that's the, the, you know, the, the shtick you've been given in the Christian life, then I just want you to know that that's a lie. That's unfaithful to the, the Scriptures. It's unfaithful to the very words of Jesus Christ. There is a cost to following Jesus. You say, well, what's the cost? Here it is. It's all of you. All of you. 
Every part of you must be surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can't withhold any part of you. You give yourself wholly to him as your Lord and master, and you call upon him as your savior, the only one who could rescue and deliver you from your sins. If you are not willing to pay the price, Jesus says you cannot be his disciple. So you must learn in the Christian life that, yes, you must count the cost and then obey no matter the cost. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You count the cost and then you obey no matter the cost. Here is Esther putting this on full display for us. She puts on her royal robes. She prepares herself to go into the presence of the king knowing that that is in essence, putting her life on the line, if the king does not extend his royal scepter to her, she would suffer potentially instantaneous death. She could be exiled. She could lose all of the blessings and privileges she has enjoyed up to this point living in Ahasuerus' kingdom. Each of us comes to defining moments when we must decide whether to continue to live as pagans or to stand out with God's covenant people in Christ. Esther's decision put her life at great risk. And yet I want you to see this as well. It's also the very decision that gave her the strength and courage to face the risk of going to the king uninvited. And as a result of her decision to identify with God's people, she was personally transformed to the full dignity, courage, and power to be who she was, the queen of Persia. I love what, uh, what commentator Karen Job says about this. So will put it on the screen there for you. She says this, the transformation of Esther's character from a person of weak character to one with heroic moral stature and political skill proceeds from the defining moment when she decides to identify herself with God's covenant. Esther is referred to by name 37 times in the story in only 14 of those references, she is Queen Esther. Esther assumes the dignity and power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a woman of God. I love that. And here's why I love that so much. Listen, it's because I've said this a million times. I'm going to repeat it until the day I die. In the Christian life and in life in general, identity drives activity. Belief determines behavior. The thing that defines you most is going to be the controlling factor in your life. And, and here's what you, if you're a Christian here today, if you are identified with Jesus Christ, here's one of the things you have to constantly recall to your own heart and mind. Listen, Christian, you are a son and daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are given royal status by God himself. In fact, you're given the very status of Jesus Christ himself. You are given the status, in a sense, of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You're robed in his righteousness. Your identity is wrapped up in him and in his identity. So like Esther, we need a transformation of our own character so that we may no longer live as pagans in the kingdom of this world. And that is the work of faith. 
produced by the power of the Holy Spirit, without which we, we cannot be the people God created us to be, nor can we be used for the development of his kingdom in his grand story of redemption. He makes us strong. And, and this, listen, this, this faith that God calls you to, this isn't faith in yourself like the world wants you to believe. This isn't just kind of like believing in yourself to be who you should be. No, your faith is in the one who is able to do abundantly more than you can ask or think. You are called to stand firm, not in the strength of your might, but to stand firm in the strength of his might. He makes us strong, but I want you to see here in Esther, he also makes us selfless. Verse two, this is the moment of truth. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. We, we wait for this moment here. Will she be granted the gift of life, or will she be judged with death? And as he holds out the golden scepter to her, he invites her into his presence. Her life is spared, but then we see in verse three, he invites her to come into his presence to ask whatever she wants, up to half my kingdom, he says. Now, he's not literally going to give her half his kingdom. This is a figure of speech in the ancient world. He's simply saying, listen, I'm, I'm willing to be generous with you. I'm willing to be kind to you. You just come to me and you ask and, and I will give you what is on your heart. Remember why she's in this position. Remember what she's doing. She's not risking her life simply to preserve herself. She is looking to protect the people of God. She has come not simply to beg for mercy for her own life. She comes as an advocate or a mediator, so to speak, on behalf of those who have no access to the king, who can't come to him and request that their life would be spared we see her in here, such selflessness. She's willing to risk her life in order to save the lives of others. And you see, selflessness is always a mark of those God is using to build his kingdom. Always. This is exactly what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, where he reminds us that we're to look out not just for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. And like Paul in Philippians chapter 2, here Esther actually points us directly to Christ. She points us to Christ who is our great advocate, who is our great mediator, the one who did not simply risk death in order to save us, but selflessly gave his life to save us. Listen, the enemy wants us to be weak and selfish so that we can be utterly useless and irrelevant in advancing the kingdom of God. That's what the enemy wants. But you see, God here is calling us to be strong and selfless, to be used for the development of the kingdom of God. And here's what that looks like as the story unfolds. We don't just need to be strong and selfless, we need to be strategic and shrewd. Now, at this point in the story where the king has said, come on, ask anything you want, I, I think everything in us is saying like, just spare my people. But that's not what she does. It's fascinating. Verse 4, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. 
Haman says to go get, or excuse me, the king says, go get Haman, bring him. We're gonna go to this feast just as Esther has asked. We, we expect her though to say, save my people. Even though the situation is urgent, here's what you need to see, Esther is patient. She is moving here with great caution and wisdom. She has a very deliberate plan. She is being strategic in what she is doing they come to the, the feast, and then in verse 6, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, she, he asks her a second time, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And here you're thinking, well, surely now's the moment. She's buttered him up. He's all ready to go, and she's going to say, save my people. What does she do? She says, come to another feast Tomorrow. And bring Haman again. It's interesting, verse 7. As Esther responds, it says, Then Esther answered, My wish and my request. You'll notice the, the kind of the semicolon there, the colons. It's, it's as if, it's as if the, in, in the Hebrew, it's like dot, dot, dot. Okay, that's what you need to think. So my wish is like she's standing there in the presence of the king at this feast. My wish and my request is. And some, some people think, well, this moment she chickened out. She just got scared. That's, I mean, who could blame her, right? But I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think she's scared. I think she's shrewd. I think Esther's reading the room. <laughs> I think, I think Esther is exercising incredible wisdom, and I think that wisdom is a byproduct of the fasting and praying that have gone before this. I think Esther is so in tune with what God is doing, she's just simply marching to the beat of God's heart. That's what a prayer and fasting often does for the Christian. It rids us of our own desires, our own wishes, our own plans, and it tunes them to the Lord's. She stops herself because she's shrewd. She obviously knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Not just one feast, but two. But you see, it's really not about her plan at all. It's about God's plan. All this timing, it's, it's absolutely necessary for God's plan to be fulfilled. You see, God's perfect plan, his perfect timing is being put on display throughout this book. Obedience in the Christian life requires great wisdom because God's ways are, are so often not our, our ways. God's plans are not, not our plans. We, 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 we think it should be done one way and then God, God, God often just, he doesn't do it that way. But, but we see, listen, we see directly what's in front of us and, and only a little, a little ways down the road, God sees everything from beginning to end. He, he knows every possible situation. He knows how everything could play out in any different circumstance and God knows exactly what he's doing to accomplish his good and perfect purposes. It's interesting, in the, the Gospels, Jesus told his disciples, he said in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And then he tells them this, therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. It's like, be careful. Don't get yourself into trouble if you don't need to. Like, do things in a very shrewd and strategic way. It's going to help you and advance my purposes. You see, the direct approach is not always the best approach. 
standing on a corner with a bullhorn screaming at people to repent isn't sinful. It's just not wise. How about we take a page out of Esther's book, pun intended, and invite someone over for a meal? Listen, this is not what the text is telling us to do. I'm just telling you this is a wonderful application that we can draw from here. I think there's great wisdom in what Esther does here. She has them over for a meal. And I just think, listen, the Christian life, I don't know what your your evangelistic tactic is. I, I Honestly, I don't know when the last time you shared the gospel with somebody was. All I know is this, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the great commission has been given to you. You are called by God to testify to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ just like I am. The problem is, is so often we, we freeze up or we fail to simply do the, the little things that God's calling us to do. We don't know really what to do. Can I just give you a really simple, maybe practical way to get into somebody's life? Invite them over for a meal. It's just so simple. And, listen, this is, and don't feel like you have to share the gospel with them in the first 15 seconds of the meal. Don't even feel like you have to share the gospel with them the first. Some of you are like, I can't even believe he's saying this. I'm telling you right now, it, it is okay to simply have people into your home and to love them, to get to know them, to introduce yourself to them. And it's okay to do it a second time. Now listen, listen, here's the deal though, okay? Unending silence is not an option in the Christian life. Each of Esther's words that are recorded for us here are measured, but she would eventually, listen, give Ahasuerus the details of her request. When seeking to see those around us come to Christ, listen, we may be strategic with what, where, and when we share with them the gospel, but we cannot be silent forever. There comes a time when the content of the gospel must be shared. We cannot hope, listen to this one, Christians, we cannot hope people will make it to heaven just by observing our lives any more than Ahasuerus could discern what Esther wanted just by attending her feasts. So let's make this really practical. Who are you going to have over for dinner? You think I'm joking. I'm like, I'm dead serious about this. Who, which one of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers are you going to have into your home and demonstrate gospel hospitality to? Listen, in order to at some point in the very near future share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Okay, don't miss that part. Here's what I want you to do as a couple, if you're married or if you're single, to, to go home. Maybe you already know the names of people right now. I, I want you on your way home to discuss who is it? Who are we having over into our home? Then here's what I want you to do. Listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend a few days together as a family fasting and praying. You don't have to fast for three days. Okay, straight. At least not straight. Just pick a couple meals or pick a meal as a family. Fast. Pray for their souls. Pray that God would give you courage and strength and wisdom. And then, listen, then step out in faith and invite them. And after that, listen, serve them, bless them, love them, and speak and proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. All right, let me give you one more way you can be useful for the development of God's kingdom. Here it is, be surrendered and submissive. Now, 
when we read all of this, it's important to understand we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. We know how Esther's decision led her to power and fame. We know what's going to happen through all of this. But listen, Esther has not read the rest of chapter 5 or 6. She's like, I don't, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I just know I'm supposed to be obedient. And so, Christian, here's, here's what we, you and I need to remember. We must, listen, God will often put us in places where we don't know the outcome in the moment. And where the outcome is not even guaranteed to be favorable for us personally. God does not give us all the details. You're like, why? I want the details. Here's why. Because he wants us to trust in his presence in his provision, and in his promises. And if you have too many details, guess what? You're not going to trust in those things. Our, our dependence is not just for our good. It's for his glory. And when the outcome arrives, here's what God wants. When the outcome arrives and God decides to do something just marvelous through our faithful obedience, here's what he's looking for. He wants us to be able to quickly say, look what God has done. Look what only God can do. Not look how good I was. Look how brilliant I was. Look at what I accomplished. I love this. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. God's like, listen, don't worry. You just be faithful. I'll move the hearts of man. I can move the hearts of the king. Leave that to me. The Lord blesses faithfulness and obedience in the Christian life. He always does. That's not a guarantee. There's not a guarantee that it's not going to cost you anything, but the Lord blesses it. And, and I think this, listen, examples like this of Esther, they remind us that we can trust the plan of God, the plan that he has for our lives, and the timing of his plan in our lives. Because so often, I, I don't know about you, but I look sometimes at the circumstances of my life, and I'm like, God, are you really there? I talked to somebody this past week, you know, crying out to the Lord. Like, I, I cried out to the Lord, why didn't he answer me? And that's often the way it feels. Like, God, where are you? Are you listening? Do you even care? Do you actually love me? I thought I was your child. That's often how we feel in this life. And stories like this, they remind us that his plan and timing are perfect even when it doesn't feel like it. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that means we must be a people who are surrendered to the Lord's plan and submissive in all things, trusting and obeying Our strength comes not from knowing the outcome of our actions, but in knowing the one who is sovereign over them. Now we turn to Haman. And Haman gives us a picture of somebody who is foolish. He really tells us how to be used for the destruction of the kingdom. We read about Haman in contrast to Esther, beginning in verse 9. It says, And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. 
And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. The Lord is not the only one who makes plans, but he is the only one whose plans will be fully accomplished. Satan makes plans all the time. He makes plans for the destruction of God's people and the destruction of God's kingdom, and then he uses others to carry them out. Haman is likely an unwitting example of that. I think Haman, in one sense, is simply acting according to his own sinful passions and desires, but he is a tool in the hands of Satan. It's important that as we look at Haman, we should examine our lives to be sure that we are not even unwittingly carrying out Satan's plans rather than our Savior's plans. It's possible that we can be used to destroy the kingdom of God, to, to halt, not in a permanent sense destroy, but to, to, to halt its advancement in some way. First, notice this. You can be used to destroy the kingdom of God if you feel idolatry rather than forsake it. Verse 9, Haman, he goes out joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai at the gate, look at this, he neither rose or trembled, no fear in, in in Mordecai, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Have you ever, have you ever pendulum swung in like, what's the shortest period of time it's taken you to swing from like pure joy to utter like madness and anger? Maybe anger is not your thing. Maybe it's like despair or sadness. I don't know. It's like, you know, you're, you're watching the Leafs in the playoffs and 30 seconds left, they tie up the game and then they lose the game in overtime. Like pure joy Absolute madness. And that's still better than being a Canadians or a Boston Bruins fan. <laughs> he walks out joyful. He sees Mordecai. Mordecai's just blatant disregard, disrespect, and he's fuming mad. Once again, Mordecai is unwilling to give Haman what he wanted, and the emotional pendulum swing, here's what you need here, it exposes the idols of his heart. You say, well, what is an idol? I like Tim Keller's definition of an idol uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Here's what he says. It'll put it on the screen. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, 
If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. We need to ask ourselves, listen, when we, when we look at this and we think about this, we need to ask two important questions, okay? Here they are. This is very important for your own heart today. In what or whom do I take joy? That's the first question. In what or whom do I take joy? The second question is like it, but it's, it's the reverse. What or who kills joy in my life? What or who kills joy in my life? You see, one thing that Haman wanted more than anything else was honor from Mordecai. We often make an idol out of what we do not have. Respect, approval, acceptance, love, affection, a relationship, a possession, money. And, and you, can, you can kind of get into your heart a little bit by simply asking some questions frequently. If I just had blank, I'd be happy. Every one of us has something we can fill in the blank with right now. If I just had blank, I'd be happy. Or how about this? If I just had blank, I would be secure. If I just had blank, I would be satisfied. If I just had blank, I'd be content. That's your idol. Let me frame it the other way. When I don't have blank, I am angry. When I don't have blank, I feel insecure, unsatisfied discontent. Whatever it is, here's what you need to hear, whatever that is in that blank, and we all have them, myself included, we all just, our hearts, Calvin said, our heart is an idol-making factory, right? We, we just constantly revert back to worshiping something other than God, to believing that something other than God will, will satisfy the deepest longing and craving of our soul. That's, that's the way the human heart is, is wired, and anything, anything other than Jesus is a problem because nothing else can satisfy like he can. No amount of money, no pleasure, no status, no relationship, no vacation, no home improvement. They're all temporary. Yes, they can give you a temporary hit, but, but that just makes you simply an addict. You're a worship addict, Okay? Just one more hit after another. That's not good enough, right? You get the thing you want, what do you do? You turn to something else, and that doesn't give you what you want, what do you do? You turn to something bigger and better, and just hit after hit after hit after hit, and it just leaves you bankrupt, empty, broken. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever satisfy the deepest longings and cravings of your soul. Only Jesus can. He is the fountain of living water. He is manna from heaven. He is the bread of life. And if you feast on him, he promises, he promises you will be satisfied. Worshiping other things, it's like putting the wrong fuel in your car. And you can put banana peels in your gas tank all you want that doesn't give you a DeLorean with a flux capacitor. 
Your car was meant to run on a particular kind of fuel, and so is your heart. And if you put the wrong fuel in your car, it's going to destroy it. You put the wrong worship fuel in your heart, it's going to destroy it. You were designed to worship one thing alone, God. And you look and look for all kinds of other things, they won't do. So I just ask you as you contemplate this in your own life, maybe even in this moment, would you ask God to use his spirit and his word and his people to help you identify any idols that you may have? And then would you ask for his grace? This is the best part about the gospel, isn't it? Just grace upon grace. Ask for his grace to help you forsake them immediately through repentance and to replace them with a greater love and a greater affection for and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Link to that, if you want to be used to destroy God's kingdom, you need to foster pride rather than humility. 10 through 13 here in chapter 5, Haman, he restrains himself in the moment, but he goes home and notice what he does. He sends for his friends and his wife, and then Haman just starts to list all the good things he has. You notice that? Just look how important I am. I mean, look, look, at, look at my position. Look how the king has honored me. Even Esther, the queen, is inviting me to go places with the king to feast. I mean, do you know how many sons I have? His wife's like, yeah, I was there. <laughs> sons were a sign of status in this culture. And here what we see is Haman, he just thinks so highly of himself. He just got to tell everybody how important he is powerful and wealthy. I mean, in light of that, you hear, you hear him saying, it's like, look, look, look who I am. Who does Mordecai think he is? How dare he disrespect me like this? You see, he craves significance and being significant. His glory was all he cared about. And his significance was found in accolades and approval and assets and achievements, and that's often where we find our own significance. Pride is the substitution and exaltation of ourselves in place of God. And it's what God opposes and what leads to our destruction, Proverbs 16, 18. And in verse 12 and 13, it's intended to be uh, ironic Haman said, even Queen Esther, this is amazing, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. What a pouty baby. <laughs> but the, the, it's supposed to be like, the irony is supposed to show us how ridiculous this is. How ridiculous it is when our foundation, listen, is our stuff or our status, and what other people think about us. When we rest our identity in what the world tells us is valuable, we're supposed to look at Haman and say, what a fool! And yet how often do we rest our identity not in the gospel, not in Jesus Christ, but in our job, our skills and abilities, our possessions, and you see, when we do this, we're no different than Haman. We become the fool. 
So why is that so foolish? Here's why. Because at any moment, those things that you place your identity in, all the temporary things of the world, at any moment, they could be stripped away, and then what are you left with? That relationship that blows up, that house that you desperately wanted but never got, that promotion, that career, that job, that lifestyle, whatever it is, you know, if it's stripped away, it just leaves you exposed and it leaves you empty and bankrupt and broken. You see, we need to place our hope and our identity in something that's eternal, something that can never be shaken and never be taken away. And the Lord gives grace to the humble. The humble find their joy, their identity, and their life in Jesus Christ. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? You know what's so awesome? Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Listen, the fool, the fool is the one who tries to inherit this world. But the meek, listen, loved ones, the meek are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You get the greater garden of Eden. Do you realize that? Who cares about this world? Who cares about what you could accumulate in this world? Who cares about all the status and success you could accumulate in this world? Who cares? You are sons and daughters of the king, and the kingdom awaits you. The presence of your Savior awaits you. It is going to be way, way better than anything this world could ever offer you. Look there. And finally, listen... Here's how you can be used for the destruction of God's kingdom. Find voices of compliance rather than conviction. I mean, did you notice what he does? The first thing he does is he goes and he calls his friends and he calls his wife. He tells them his plight. And what do they do? They give him some counsel. What's the counsel? Here's what you need to do, Mordecai. Or sorry, Haman. What you need to do is you need to build a gallows. Now, don't think like West, wild, wild west gallows, okay, with rope and noose. Think 75 feet tall pole. They want to impale him on a pole, 75 feet high in the air, and this is just such a demonstration of his pride, his ego. I want the kingdom to see how important I am and what happens to anybody who would dare disrespect me. I don't know what kind of conversations you have with your spouse, but how to execute someone on your front lawn is not one that we've ever had. <laughs> Just give him such bad advice, right? They play into his own wicked desires. They fuel it. They foster it. They encourage it. And we know the end of the story. It's only going to land. It's only going to end in his destruction. There's so much more irony to come in this story. You see, listen. As a faith family, we are called to speak truthfully to one another in love, speaking the truth in love. We need to surround ourselves with those who won't, uh, who will, sorry, who don't tell us what we want to hear, but who tell us what we need to hear. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, says that my self-perception is an accurate, is as accurate, he says, as a carnival mirror. You believe that about yourself? Your self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. The, the irony of there is that we actually believe we see ourselves best, Right? We're all biased in our own favor, but here's the deal. You don't, you don't see yourself best. You know who sees yourself better than you do? Your spouse, your kids, your closest friends. Why? Because you're willing to overlook things that they're not. 
Paul Tripp contends that we need to hold the word in front of each other so that we can see ourselves clearly. True friends tell you when you have food on your face, okay? That's a true friend. True friends tell you when you got something in your teeth. True friends tell you when you got like something hanging out of your nose. That's a true friend. Why? Because I can't see it. I don't know what's there. I'm just going about life with food all over my face. So are you. And I'm not even bothered by it. That's the crazy part about our sin sometimes. We just like, we don't see it. We don't care. We're not bothered by it. Other people see it. The question is, will they say something about it? We need others who can see and are bothered by our sins to lovingly and graciously speak God's word into our lives. I love what C.J. Mahaney says. He says this, I'll put it on the screen. He says, without others' help to see myself clearly, I'll listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. That's good. Kids, I want, I want to speak to you for just a minute. I, I want to, listen, school's starting. Some of you are, are excited about that. Most of you are not. I get it. I've said this before, but I want to say it again as the beginning of the school year starts for you. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Okay? Just drive that into your, into your mind right now. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You surround yourself with fools, you will become a fool. You surround yourself with those who are faithful and you are more than likely to become faithful. The friends you choose will influence who you become. And the question you need to ask as you begin this new year and you look around maybe at your friend group right now is this, do I want faithful friends around me? Am I going to surround myself with friends who love Jesus, who love the local church, friends that point me to do right things and good things, friends that point me to look more like Jesus Christ and want me to be holy, friends who point out sin in my life and call me to the standards of scripture? Or do I want to surround myself with people who don't love Jesus and who love the world, who point me to disobey the Lord, to disobey my parents, to reject them and to live for myself? If I could just encourage you, find good friends who love Jesus. Yes, you can have unbelieving friends because you want them to come to know Jesus. But your closest friends, the friends who have the greatest amount of influence on your life, the friends you spend the most time around, make them friends who love Jesus and are striving to be like Jesus. Who you surround yourself with is who you will become. And adults, listen, I'm speaking to kids, but I'm speaking to you. This is true for you and it's true for me. And parents, especially with young kids, can I just, can I just encourage you? Listen, you're, you need to help your kids choose wisely. At young ages in particular, guard them, even if they don't like you for it. Be willing to risk it for the sake of their future. Will you be used for the development or the destruction of the kingdom of God? That's the question. You are either for me, Jesus said, or against me. Choose this day whom you will serve. I hope you, like Joshua, can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, counting the cost and obeying no matter the cost.